There's been an enormous amount of change in business in the last 18 months, perhaps more than I've seen in my entire business lifetime up till now. And I'm keen to examine uh, what some of these changes might be and what opportunities these might uh, present. Uh, why am I qualified to do this? Well, uh, I am a businessman, a coach, an entrepreneur, um, an investor. I've uh, set up more than 30 companies. I floated business on the stock market, led hostile takeovers. Um, and I guess I've, it's not always been glamorous, but I've worked at the coalface of business Britain. Um, but why should you take my word for it? Uh, I've prepared a list of 10 questions, and I'm going to ask the same 10 questions to six different people from completely disparate areas. Uh, some people from the arts, billionaires, economists, uh, comedians, and I'm asking them a whole range of questions uh, from how they think uh, life, business life will be in post-Brexit, post-Covid Britain. Uh, to the advice that they might give uh, give their children and what they think about climate change. Um, and I look forward to exploring those conversations. Today, my, my guest is, uh, is Liz Martins, um, who is Senior Economist at uh, HSBC. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to this, uh, this podcast. Um, as you know, we're asking six people from completely diff disparate parts of life, the same 10 questions um, about the Britain 2.0, the sort of post-COVID, post-Brexit Britain. And uh, of all the people I'm speaking to, you're the one who's the only economist. You're the only one who really knows what she's talking about. So I'm looking forward to discussing these questions and, and, and hearing your, your thoughts and views. Um, so welcome, good morning. Um, Let's 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 look at life through through your lens, um, Liz. So, what opportunities and, and threats do you think that, that Britain and the economy has um, as a result of, of COVID virtually ending and, and, and Brexit? How do you how do you see the world? How do you see the UK? Yeah, so I think we've just come out of kind of a double shock, haven't we, uh, as the UK? Two major changes, and of course our government ploughed on with the uh, decision to leave the EU, even though you know a lot of people said they could have delayed it um, through 2020. So actually, we've come into 2021 and, and the future um, with these two big changes. Um, so let's maybe take them um, one by one. Um, COVID-19 fundamentally has been a supply shock to the economy. If you shut down large parts Parts of the economy. So it's not producing goods and services. Nobody's investing. Nobody's consuming. You know, that is going to fundamentally diminish supply in the economy. It shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that we've come out of it um, and there just isn't as much to go around um, as there used to be. And you see this in, in all recessions, you know, in, in, the, in the global uh, financial crisis, you know, they stopped investing. They stopped even making bricks for building because the housing markets took such a tumble. So it takes a while to adjust and we that. shouldn't be surprised that economies like super tankers take 18 miles to turn around and stop and start again. Absolutely. And, and what happened in the first lockdown to the, to the UK economy and the global economy was really extraordinary and unprecedented. You know, we've obviously heard those words a lot um, in the last couple of years, but it really was. And as you say, it takes a while to adjust back from that. Now, economists talked a lot about um, a V-shaped recovery, and really that is what has materialised in demand, but the supply side takes longer. And that's why we're seeing 
seeing a lot of um, sort of supply issues um, now and a lot of shortages and constraints and that's pervading right across different sectors of the economy. But let's drill down into that. What opportunities does that offer and what threats? Well, we're clearly the th- we've seen some of the threats and those of us have been queuing up trying to put diesel in our cars recently. But what are the opportunities and the threats as you see it going forward into the medium term? What you've got is a supply-demand imbalance and what the economic textbooks tell us is that when that happens, prices go up, that will attract new producers into the market, new suppliers. Um, and, you know, we're all relying on human ingenuity to meet these supply challenges. So, you know, what are we what are we short of? What do we need? Um, for example, one of the big issues at the moment is, is, is the global supply chain, getting goods around the world, not just to the UK, the US is having big problems as well. So what's, what might be the answer to that? I think, you know, things like 3D printing can be a big winner there. Um, so you're not relying on those big supply chains. Maybe moving some of that supply chain um, so it's not the other side of the world. Maybe it's nearer um, to home. Maybe that might be one way um, in which, you know, people can respond to these challenges because ultimately opportunities are all about seeing a problem and thinking creatively about where the, where the answer lies. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately human ingenuity will win out and um, and there will be a, a change to that. Um, I guess the next challenge then is Brexit. Um, and that has had a, had a real genuine impact. Um, if we look at the UK's imports and exports, um, they've not really recovered from their pandemic lows. If we look across to the Eurozone, they've had a much stronger recovery in trade. So if we look at the divergence in the performance, you know, you have to conclude we've all suffered from the pandemic, we've all suffered from these global supply chain issues. The difference has to be um, Brexit. Um, So we haven't yet recovered from that. I read an article that you wrote last week uh, where you were talking about the export curve and it looked pretty grim um, in terms of of, of recovery. Is um, Is that something that we should worry about or is it just going to be slow to get going again? Well, I think... I, I, I think we should be worried about it, to be honest. I think we've, you know, we've made things harder to trade with our largest trading partner. Now, obviously, the UK's long-term plan is to do deals with other parts of the world and diversify so that we're trading with Asia and, and the US more. But as you say, the same same issue again, it takes a long time to make these big structural changes. Um, for now, I think I think it is something to, to worry about. You know, the UK's competitive advantage has been eroded um, and it is, it is causing real issues issues in, in the economy. Well, that leads on to my second question, really, Liz, is, is what will our trading relationship be like with the rest of the world? What will our trading relationship be like with China, with Europe, with uh, with perhaps the US? Do we need a trading agreement with the US? Import tariffs don't seem too dreadful. What's your view? They're not too dreadful. And we do a lot of trade, of course, with the US already. But I definitely think that, you know, the more we the more deals we do, uh, we've done one with Australia, um, which is which is good news. Um, the more deals we do, you know, the more that will diversify demand for British goods and services. And that will be positive. Um, you know, it will take a lot to offset, um, you know, any lost access to the European market. But it may be that over time, pragmatism prevails in our relationship with Europe as well. And maybe, you know, negotiate are still going on um, as we speak. Um, that's more to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol, but it's not to say that over time some of these obstacles couldn't be eased, and, and I certainly hope that Do you not think case. common sense will prevail? After all, you know, it's inconceivable that we don't want, that the Germans and French and the rest of the Eurozone don't want to sell us their cars and washing machines, and we want to buy them. So will common sense not prevail eventually? 
It's interesting. I used to live in Switzerland, and they seem to have quite an interesting relationship with uh, with the EU, and, and sat quite comfortably um, in the middle, uh, where they embraced Europe without necessarily being in Europe. Yeah, but they have they have a lot of different deals, and they do basically have free movement with Europe, and that's where the UK's red line was drawn. So if you want for, if you want complete you know if you want easy access for trade, free movement is the price that the European Union um, has set, and that's the price that the UK hasn't been prepared uh, to pay. In terms of do we what do, will do the French and Germans want to sell us you know cars and prosecco? <laughs> Absolutely, of course they do. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the problem. The problem is we want to sell them things as well, and that's where the obstacles currently um, are coming in a little bit, and that's a shame. And if I can push you a little bit, if you if you're looking into your crystal ball, how do you think this will pan out? How do you think that this will end? What will be the compromise? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think, as, as I think, common sense and pragmatism does usually prevail in these matters. Um, whether that means the UK giving a little on immigration, I mean, we've already started to see that in the current supply crisis. Um, we've seen, you know, the, the government issuing some or, or trying to issue some visas to, to truck drivers and so on. So maybe it involves a little bit of the UK giving on that side. Um, and generally, you know, as time passes and if, if things, if obstacles are causing problems for both sides then talks will be held to to try and remove them but um yeah it might, it might just take some time i'm glad to hear you say that and talking about our relationship trading relationship with the rest of the world what's what is our relationship with china how's that panning out you know we've seen as blaming china for the, the pandemic you know whether it was started in laboratory or whether it, whether it didn't we're concerned that china might invade taiwan um, you know, how, how's that going to pan out? We seem to have outsourced a lot of manufacturing to China and now we're moaning about the energy that, that they're using, you know. Yeah. There's some un- unresolved business there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really difficult one um, because we can't ignore the behemoth, economic behemoth that is China. It is, it's, it's, a, it's a huge player in the global economy, increasingly so. Um, it is a good customer for, you know, the West's, um, particularly services um, exports as well. Um, and there will be there will be opportunities for UK companies there. Um, the political wind seems to be changing all the time on that front. Um, and so that will be that will be difficult for companies, I think, to try and navigate. Um, but ultimately, it's a huge player in the global economy and that, that shouldn't be ignored. At the moment, China seems to be undergoing a bit of a, a growth slow down, um, which historically, you know, big, a big economy globally slowing down should be bad news for the rest of the world. In this case, if it does reduce a little bit demand for commodities and, and that kind of thing, it might actually relieve some of the supply pressures in the global economy, which might even end up being being positive. That is interesting. And from this sort of melee of, of information that you digest on a, on a daily basis, um, Liz, what kind of trends do you think have emerged that will be here to stay? What what kind of differences in the way that we live and do business are you are you sort of seeing? Um, I think you know in the post pandemic world we're obviously doing a lot more remotely. We're doing a lot more online, um, and I think we're seeing that in, in across different sectors. Um, now, I think the the human desire to interact, uh, be sociable, be in the same room um, that that remains undimmed for sure. Um, but there are a lot of efficiencies that have been kind of uh, accelerated. Accelerated um, in the pandemic, and I think that you know, and and, and it's not just the, the 
you know, people at the cutting edge of technology, it's your grandma as well, um, who's gone out and realised that she can do her shopping online as well. And, and, and people have been kind of pushed into doing uh, much more online, using less cash um, and all those kind of things. And, and, and that stuff, I think, is, 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 is definitely here to stay. That's interesting. So what I think you're saying is, not putting words into your mouth, is that there aren't necessarily any new trends. These are sort of old trends that were happening anyway that have sped up. Um, yeah. And the pandemic and Brexit have forced us to sort of just go down that route more quickly. Absolutely. I mean, video conferencing always, ex- not always existed, but it's existed for a long time. Um, and yet the pandemic forced us to do so. I think what's going to be really interesting, what's going to be a test is business travel. Now, in theory, now we have Zoom uh, and other platforms like that. Um, there's no need for anyone to ever get on a plane for business reasons again. And if you combine that technology with the climate change goals that many uh, countries have adopted, you know, um, it, we could see a real drop in that. And yet, many people in business will tell you face-to-face contact is invaluable and irreplaceable. And actually, um, we, we may see a bounce on those grounds. And, and certainly from my perspective, sorry, as an, as, as an economist, I'm starting to see more and more face-to-face bookings. And I'm, I'm very glad that I am. Do you know, I, I'm with the latter. I think yeah. that um, Zoom is a blunt instrument. And, and while it's a useful way of, of communicating simple information, it lacks any of the nuances. And humans are gregarious people. And I think we're seeing the pendulum swing back now. Um, I'd, be, I'd be an investor in, uh, in airlines. I think they've been oversold. And any well-funded airlines, uh, I think, have rebounded or are rebounding. And I'd certainly be an investor in, in that as one of the sectors that I'm quite, uh, quite bullish about. And certainly in my office, I'm seeing the hustlers, the salespeople, the kind of young people um, have been frustrated and there's this kind of human gene that we're designed to be gregarious and I've noticed, I I think they're coming back to work and socialising is almost overheating I'm always trying to put the the brake on um, a little bit but but let's look back at at the cost of all of this uh, now who's going to pay this, we're talking about a 400 billion pound bill um, for for the lockdown and still growing, you know, with with new requests for subsidies of of companies using high levels of energy. Uh, Who's going to pay this bill? Who's going to pay for the ongoing requirement of the NHS and the whole care system? Yeah, I mean, that's the uh, £400 billion uh, question, I suppose. Um, Yeah, the UK public debt has risen by 20% of GDP um, just in the two years since the pandemic. Um, It's a huge amount of money. Um, There's kind of two schools of thought. Um, One is that as long as interest rates remain relatively low and investors believe in the UK and are prepared to buy that debt and invest in it, then the UK doesn't need to immediately panic and try to pay it down. It's not like you having a personal loan that's eating into your income and you, you, you know, you're not expecting a pay rise to, to cover it. You know, a, a, a country, a government debt is slightly different. So some people would argue we shouldn't worry, we should capitalise on interest rates being relatively low, although actually, as I speak, they're, they're going up quite quite rapidly in the markets at least, um, and, and, and deal with that, um, you know, at a later point or hope that economic growth takes care of it. If you are not of that school of thought, then you think you need we need some ac- 
action to reduce the deficit, reduced uh, the national debt pile. And I think that's probably where our Chancellor sits, Rishi Sunak, uh, more so actually than a lot of others in the developed world. We don't see other countries immediately rushing to put taxes up, um, but we have seen that here in the UK. So we've seen Rishi Sunak announce corporation tax going up actually very steeply, um, six percentage points from 19 to 25%. That kicks in in 2023. And then companies also face their national insurance um, cost going up as well in 2022. Um, and that, of course, also applies to employees. Um, so that's the new health and social care levy. It is. And it worries me uh, that even a you know, teenage school child could see that that's probably not the wisest way to, you know, to punish the employees and the job creators. Um, you know, uh, seems to be the wrong way to to, to raise taxes. I think it's, I think it's in, in really challenging. We've come out of this pandemic, and probably, thanks to government intervention, it's gone better than many people would have predicted. You know, we have had a V-shaped recovery in demand, but just as we've got to this point where we think, oh, we seem to have survived it. You know, they said it couldn't be done. It felt at times like the end of the world, and we've come out and we've come out the other side. And suddenly, your input costs are going up. Your commodity costs your staff wage bill is going up you can't get your orders in from wherever you've ordered from and and here's the government saying actually and the tax bill's going up as well it is tough for well companies. let's go down that rabbit hole let's let's, yeah. let's look at that it, it it seems to me that the you know the two words of inflation and higher interest rates are looming and scaring a lot of business owners who are thinking of making investment decisions where do you think we're going to end up with with those two items um, I think that the inflation threat is more real than it's been probably since the global financial crisis and maybe maybe before that. And that is because we have a genuine supply hit, which we've talked about already, in conjunction with a pretty solid demand picture. So it's, 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 it's almost inevitable. Um, we're seeing wages go up and the risk is that you get a spiral there. So I go to my boss and I say, my cost of living's going up, my gas bill's going up, I need a pay rise. I get a pay rise, but then my boss says, well, now my costs have gone up, so I need to put my prices up. Um, and then, and then you know, the cost of living goes up again. So then you get a bit of a spiral. Now, most economists, including us, think that this uh, current cycle will be contained um, and that, uh, that inflation will peak somewhere in the region of 4% in the UK. It might stay there for a while, but it will come back down again. Um, but certainly, you know, there are risks, I think, that, that it goes higher, uh, sticks around for longer. Um, and for the Bank of England, it is their job to try and make sure that doesn't happen or try to make sure that inflation on average gets down to 2% again. And that's why they're talking about raising interest rates possibly um, as soon as the end of this year. That, just to give you an insight into my world, which is consultancy world and uh, recruitment world, uh, the evidence that I'm seeing is that we are seeing scary amounts of inflation, wage rises of 15 to 20% in some circumstances, uh, counter offers being uh, accepted at uh, obscenely high increases. And when you don't have the commodity, as you say, there are only three ways that you can solve this issue. You can either steal a member of staff for somebody else, train somebody up, or relax the visa rules where you're bringing in people for key roles. And, and given that you know England was kind of built on immigration, really, um, do, do you think that that pressure will help the government to perhaps relax some of the, um, the visa rules? I mean, first of all, that's so interesting to hear what you're seeing. Um, 
you know, it's almost like maybe the official data aren't even capturing that level um, of, of, of wage pressure and, and, and the acuteness of the tightness in the, the labour market. But I think you're, you're absolutely right. It is, it is something we're seeing across different sectors. Is migration going to be the answer? It might normally be, um, but in this case, actually, it's not just the UK that has this um, labour shortage. You know, particularly the, the sector in the UK where it is most acute and well documented is um, HGV drivers. That is something that is true across Europe. It is um, eighty thousand so shortfall in Germany, sixty thousand in France, fifteen thousand in Italy. That, that's not a Brexit issue. It's not a Brexit issue. Um, you know, maybe exacerbated by Brexit, but you can only say that if you've got a queue of HGV drivers who want to come in but they can't. Now, the evidence so far is that that's not the case. Um, you know, I think the government has opened up some emergency visas and actually they found that applications have fallen short because, yeah, lorry drivers can, can stay in their own country and get a, a job in the same sector. Now, that's telling me that perhaps pay growth in the UK has further to go because at some point you offer a, a wage that will attract people uh, over here um, or, or into the industry from another industry, perhaps. Um, but, you know, a lot of different things have happened to the to the labour market and um, people have become inactive. People have decided to, to leave the labour market completely. But also new jobs have been created in, in new industries. And I remember um, I've seen the uh, Russell T Davies uh, series Years and Years, and he paints a vision of the future where there's been a financial crash and the only job anyone can get is, is, is delivery, delivering things on a bike. And, and that's kind of what's happened here is that suddenly there's all these jobs, big distribution centres, people bicycling your groceries over to you and your dinner over to you all the time. And a lot of jobs have been created there, which means there's less capacity to take other roles. That, that's true. I, I want to pu push you on a slightly different um, area, Liz. And, and my other guests have kind of smoothed over this a little bit or kicked the can down the, the hill a little bit. How are we going to fund the NHS going forward? We're all living longer. Um, our use of, of healthcare, I think it was Bevan who said you know, Britain has an insatiable appetite for free healthcare. And it's not just the money, is it? It's the efficiency of the monolith of the, the, you know, that we call the NHS and all the care homes that are associated with that. How are we going to solve that? Well, I'm tempted to go down the road of your other guests and, uh, and try to avoid no, this I'm not question. Letting you do that. I'm not letting you do that. I'm it's sorry. An, it's an incredibly hard question. Um, the NHS is so precious to the British people, so valued, so, you know, so treasured, and yet it's so expensive and it's so, um, you know, and, and it's, it's still got major problems, you know, there are so many problems in so many areas of it. Um, and if you, you know, talk to some people, they'd say that's because of the, the, the fundamental design is no longer appropriate because of, as you say, the demographic factors, and, and some would say it's underfunded. But if you want more funding, then where's that going to come from? Is it going to come from more borrowing? Well, as we've talked about, we've already seen debt go up a lot. Or is it going to come from more taxation? Now, this government is already telling us that taxation will be at its highest since the Second World War with the tax rises that have already been announced. And then you have people like the Institute for Fiscal Studies who produced a report saying actually the health and social care levy will probably need to double, um, which is the national insurance rise um, on both employees and employers, um, if you're going to cover that expense. So um, it, is a, it is a really difficult question. I think some people will see an increased role for the private sector um, in healthcare in the UK, but I think there'll be a lot of political resistance to that because, as I say, it is absolutely treasured, particularly after the, the pandemic. It is. It leads into my next question, though, which is about trust, really. And it's about business trust with the government. Uh, you know, in the years that I've, the companies that I've started, I, I, I've always felt in Britain that there's, there's, you can get good title, 
the kind of legal system that you can trust and you can sort of trust the government and the BBC. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. And uh, other business uh, investors that I'm that I'm talking to are concerned that the job creators, the the business risk takers, will be punished and penalised, um, and and it's not it's not healthy to have uh, distrust between the business sector and, and the government. Um, what's what's your kind of uh, view on that? You know, we've seen an enormous amount of control, sort of control that, that society hasn't seen before about lockdown, and we're not quite sure what's going to happen with vaccine passports and what, what sort of things are going to be enforced. They're different times, aren't they? They are different times, and, and and there's two parts of that. I mean, there's 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 one which is the the, the pandemic, which obviously required governments worldwide to intervene massively um, into the private sector in a way that you know they haven't done for for a long time, if ever. Um, and with that information, with that with that intervention, you get um, you, you you get some kind of involvement that maybe you know companies maybe wouldn't welcome. Um, but as well as that, I suppose there's the amount of data that we now have the ability to capture and and, and that enables um, that enables some 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 you know knowledge of the private sector that maybe used to be more more private so I think there's a lot of things that have changed um, and, uh, and and maybe businesses won't be happy with that ultimately and that leads on to leadership then of of uh, of the future what kind of, of business leaders do you think will thrive in this in this kind of new market where certainly decision making has been sped up in in the same way uh, you know people have had to make very quick decisions about what they're going to do what they're going to do to their business model some business models have changed for for, for the better um, it's forced some companies to go online high streets have uh, are changing their whole face but what sort of people what sort of entrepreneurs and business leaders will thrive in this this new Britain that we're living in. I'm not sure so much has changed in terms of the people who will thrive. I mean, there, there are new skills, right? There are new skills that will stand young people and the leaders of tomorrow in good stead. Coding is the obvious one. Yeah, supercomputing. These kind of things. Obviously, that'll stand you in good stead. But what 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 it takes to be a leader, I think, probably hasn't changed. That's in that's in human nature, and and and, and those are all those kind of qualities of leadership, empathy, and drive, and ambition, and, and boldness, and all that stuff. I mean, I don't think any of that's really changed. Okay, that's that's one of the things that does seem to have changed, is the way that we're doing business more and more often remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we talked earlier about, I think Zoom's a blunt instrument. You don't see all the nuances. You don't feel the pride or sense of concern, perhaps, that you might pick up in a face-to-face meeting when you're looking at people's body language in a in a different way. Um, do you think that's that's here to stay? Um, is it a drag on productivity or is it a great cost saving as we're all downsizing our offices? So I think there's, there's two points to be made here. Um, and the first is about competitiveness. Um, you know, you might be you might be having a, a nice Zoom conversation with your customers, but your competitor might have t- gone the extra mile, flown in, taken that customer out to dinner, had a face-to-face meeting, built a relationship, and you're stuck at home on Zoom and you think everything's going well, but you're, you're left behind. And I think there's, there's probably a good, you know, everybody always says, you know, business is about relationships. And I think, you know, as I agree with you that, that there's a limit to the relationship you can build over um, Zoom. And I think people like to interact. People like to be together. Um, in terms of productivity and remote working, I think this is uh, this is interesting. I think people have worked incredibly hard from home in the pandemic. I know I have. Um, if I if I 
have a lot of work to do. I actually choose to stay home, not because I want to, um, because I'm going to be more productive at home because, you know, I cut out the commuting and the, you know, wandering off to get a coffee and the, um, the chatting. There's so much chatting in the office. Now, the difficult thing to quantify is what that chat generates. Now, it may stop me from doing what I was doing and getting through my to-do list. I mean, I have to work later, but if it generates... A really good idea, then that is what you can't quantify and it's what you can't get on Zoom. So that's why I think a lot of employers are trying to get people back because of the belief that actually when you put people together, particularly people who aren't in the same team, so they're not going to be on the same Zoom call, they're not going to necessarily be, um, you know, cross, uh, you know, uh, cross-pollinating kind of ideas. Um, it's people that you might not necessarily normally talk to, but you've just bumped into them in the lifts. Um, that kind of thing is what you can't quantify but when it generates good ideas is is invaluable. The creativity that comes yeah. from those random meetings. No, yeah. I agree with you. I also think that there's um, th- that employers are scrambling around now trying to work out a different way of managing people uh, who, are, who are home working and, and they, people have different... You, you've talked about how disciplined you are. There are people who aren't disciplined. They're sitting at home watching, you know, Loose Women in Cash in the Attic and Judge Judy. <laughs> um, or worse. Them. <laughs> or worse. Uh, and I think that there are new trends of management emerging. Uh, you know, do you have a dedicated workplace at home uh, or are you living in a flat share with, with other people where it's very difficult? Do, do you have a desk at home? Do you not have a desk? Are you going to check in with people when you're starting or finishing work? Um, and there are people that, that will suit uh, people that have got more discipline and there are people that need to be in a more disciplined environment who will perhaps come, come, come to the office. I also am slightly concerned that there's this kind of out of sight, out of mind uh, issue and you know we've made a lot of progress uh, about the kind of gender equality and if there is a trend that women are working from home a bit more to pick up the kids or, or, or being carers in some ways I'm slightly concerned that this out of sight out of mind might mean that they're missing out on opportunities that other people are, are getting because they're in your face and, and you know you can see them in the in, in the office are you concerned about that I think I think that's interesting I, I, I think that kind of goes to the point I was making before about the competitiveness of, of in-person versus being on Zoom on the other hand women in business have always said that they've felt left out of part of the you know the action so you know the men might go off to the, the pub after work I'm not saying women can't go to the pub too but historically you know that has been a documented trend so you know being at home you know the the advantages for many women in the situation that you're talking about might outweigh the the negatives but I think you just have to be very careful that you're not missing out on on that interaction and and, and conversations aren't going on behind your back that you're missing um, but I also think it's not just women that like working from home I think you know a lot of men have been able to yes. reconnect with their families and spend time with their well said. Um, their families and, and enjoyed that and, and and actually I think you know insofar as working from home will stay with us and be an increasing part of the landscape I think it will be both men and women that that benefit from that. Okay, just just coming back to your economic background now, and and the way that you understand that money, the way the money runs through the system, and how governments control that. L- l- let's just look at uh, crypto. Can I ask you about cryptocurrencies for a little while? I've noticed that there's. A, I looked this morning actually before we before we met. Um, the, the list of countries that are kind of either banning under no circumstances can you have any cryptocurrency, or there are cryptocurrency with with restrictions, and some pretty big countries on that: Egypt, Saudi Arabia. 
China on that list. Is, is cryptocurrency a, a new global thing that we should uh, envelop or is it the emperor's new clothes and, and will it be shut down and, and should we just forget all about it? I think, for me, I would I would divide it into things like, uh, well, Bitcoin is the most famous. Um, you know, th- these kind of things, which are kind of operating like a like an asset class, like an investment um, opportunity, and we're seeing huge volatility in in those uh, in those markets, which I think is what makes some some governments quite nervous of them. Um, they also are um, not very green. Um, they have a lot of carbon emissions associated with them. They do. Um, so those things, I think, mean they have problems. And then I think you have you have um, countries like El Salvador, which has announced that Bitcoin is the na- now a nationally accepted currency, except nobody's actually really using it. That's that's one thing. And I think there are still loads of questions, um, most notably the carbon emissions one um, and the volatility. Are you more concerned about the volatility and, and the carbon emissions than the sort of government control or governments, the feeling that they'll be losing control of their economy if they don't control? the currency. I think that's probably is a big worry for governments. On the other hand, what they can do, and, and, and this is the second point I was going to come on to, is issue their own central bank digital currency. So the one that's being mooted for the UK might be called Britcoin, um, for example. And and that actually gives central banks, uh, governments, some, some control over it while still increasing the efficiencies of financial uh, transactions um, and also allows, allows more financial kind of penetration across the system. So I think, you know, Bitcoin and, and, and those kind of volatile uh, markets is, is one thing. And then central bank digital currencies, I think, definitely are. It is, to... but that sort of defeats the object a little bit, though, doesn't it? Because Bitcoin is supposed to be a global thing, whereas if we've just got Bitcoin and that's our own little, you know, it's, it's like going to Thomas Cook and changing it before you go abroad again, isn't it? I mean, I suppose the financial technology would make it a lot easier than uh, queuing for Thomas Cook, which I certainly remember, and coming away with your envelope and your and your notes. Um, you know, I think, I think it would make it consistent considerably easier to, to make those transactions. But I, I see what you're saying. You'd still have an exchange rate fundamentally. Yeah. And and we talked about the, the, the sort of carbon effects of, 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 uh, of crypto. Um, let's just forget the economy for, for a second or forget uh, forget COVID or, or Brexit. Will, um, will climate change finish us all off? Uh, yeah, so list? now we're getting to the really depressing, uh, as if we haven't been <laughs> depressing enough already. But um, no, I think, look, I mean, I'm not a climate change expert, but I have, um, I've read a bit about it. I, re- I read a book called The Uninhabitable Earth, of which the first sentence is, it is worse, much worse than you think. And actually, if you read through some of the projections of what can happen, it is... I've not read that book. Is the conclusion that uh, it's irreversible. Is it too late? No. Can we make some changes? It's not too late, but the changes that are currently being talked about by government probably don't go far enough. Um, And actually, we've just written a report on this um, ahead of COP26 in the UK, and it's all about who bears the cost, because that's the ultimate question. Uh, Of course, the government would like the private sector to bear the cost. The private sector would like the government to bear the cost. Households don't want to be taxed anymore. You know, to genuinely reduce carbon emissions, the most effective thing you do is whack a great tax on on them. Um, and then we all think twice about taking our car out and putting the heating on and, um, you know, get, taking a flight. And that forces new technology to be invented. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's absolutely. Um, and, um, and, 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 and that stuff is really hard at this juncture because we've just had a pandemic. We've already got tax rises. We've already got inflation. Um, you know, for the government to come out and say, we're going to announce this massive tax on business and households as well, or actually we're going to borrow another 400 billion. I think the, um, the office budget responsibility 
Accountability said it would cost the government £344 billion over 30 years to take a quarter of the share of, of the cost of reaching net zero by 2050. Um, so this is why I guess you get... And the consequences climate. are quite severe, really. You know, they're talking about a, a half a metre rise in sea levels in the next yeah. 50 years, which yeah. is probably in your lifetime, perhaps not in mine, maybe in mine, who knows. Um, you know, that, that's something that, that will affect us and our children and our I'm, relatives. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the UK... Is, is is better placed than many countries um, in the sense that our climate is quite moderate already. We will have more extreme um, climate, climate events. We will have sort of flooding and so on. Um, but, you know, as well as that, I think, you know, parts of the earth will become uninhabitable and then and then you'll get climate refugees. And that and that could be one way in which um, countries like the UK could be could be affected. That's interesting. So just distilling all of these opportunities and threats that, that, that we've talked about and, and the life that you're, that you're living now, and this, well, we're all living in this kind of post-Brexit, post-COVID economy, what, what advice would you give to young people or your children entering the world of, uh, of business now? What, what kind of sage seeds would you, would you plant? I think I think it has to be about taking the best of the old and the new. Um, it has to be taking advantage of the technologies and the efficiencies, and the remote working and all of that, and knowing how to how to code and how to navigate fintech and financial transactions and all of that stuff. But also being able, and this is something young people are not very good at at the moment, pick up the phone and speak to somebody because you know picking up the phone, having an old-fashioned phone call, um, goes a long way. Or go to a, go to a real meeting and and don't be afraid of real life human interaction because you know as we've said touched on a few times in this conversation that is at the heart of business um, and, and, and relationships and that is what I think is, is really key. That's such an interesting point you've made and I hadn't thought about it before. We had somebody uh, in the office yesterday uh, that we had to talk to about, um, about being late uh, and they said uh, do you want me to leave then? Uh, no, no <laughs> no we don't want you to leave we just want you to sort out your timekeeping and, and it was interesting that their I mean, they were in their late teens. Their whole world had been about avoiding confrontation. So in this kind of social media, digital world, you can walk away pretty easily, yeah. you know. And for the first time, there'd been some confrontation where somebody had challenged them and said, look, you need to come in on time. And their instant reaction was, should I leave then? Should I run away? Uh, Anything to end this conversation? Yes. Whereas yeah. actually, no, it was a straightforward conversation. Yeah. And it was like, what can you do to come in on time? You need to get an earlier train or whatever it is, you know, everything will be fine. Yeah. So that, that, yeah. that resonates. Yeah. But, um, but Liz Martins, from uh, Senior Economist from HSBC, thank you very much. Thank you.